Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What's good, boys and girls? Two for the podcast on Wednesday, the 23rd of May, brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network will allow you to go online, change your location, access things that you're geo-blocked from normally. So if you're a UK expat and you want access to the BBC iPlayer, ITV Hub, all four, whatever it is, a Liberty Shield VPN can get you there and keep your data safe. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot, five-star ratings across the board. And if you go to libertyshield.com and use the code router50, you get 50% off your Liberty Shield router. That's router50 at libertyshield.com. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check at homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you can find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 and RED10 to get 10% off at checkout. Right, folks. It's a Wednesday in an international break, so I'm very much making it up as I go along. There's not a whole bunch to talk about, but I've just seen this on Twitter, so we're going to start with this. The tweet is, comment your favourite player, from every single Premier League club. So I thought I'd do this to start. So we'll start with Arsenal. My favourite Arsenal player is Emile Smith-Rowe. I think he's a real throwback player. I love his versatility. can play as an eight, can play as a winger, can play as a ten. Great dribbler, very creative passer. Has really kicked on as a goal scorer this year as well, obviously. And I think he might just be the most talented of that incredible trio that Arsenal have there with him, Saka and, and Martinelli. I think it's close between him and Saka. And obviously Saka right now is further ahead in his development, but he's also played more at the first team level for Arsenal. Smith Rowe has had a couple of loans. He's also had a couple of injuries that have had to be managed and he's been brought along more carefully, but I would go Smith Rowe, as my favourite player at Arsenal. At Aston Villa, I think it's Ezri Konza. I love his style of defending. 
I love how aggressive he is, how front-footed he is. He reads the game very, very well. He's very comfortable on the ball. He's happy to carry the ball into midfield. He can spray a pass. He's definitely held back by the fact that he's partnered by one of the worst defenders in the division, in Tyron Mings. He should be in the England squad regularly. Now, he's had a bit of a dip of late, but Ezri Konza would be the one I'd go for at Villa. At Brentford, it's it's not even close. It's Ivan Tony. It's Ivan Tony by a distance. Again, I think he's a bit of a throwback player. That sort of target man forward, but he's really aggressive. He works the channels well. His link play is good. He absolutely decimated Joel Matip, who's one of the best centre-backs in the league and one of the best in the air. And he just bullied him all over the place when Liverpool played Brentford at the Brentford Community Stadium this year. I love his attitude. I love his approach. I love the way he takes penalties. I think it's taken him a bit of time to adapt to the Premier League. He's had to go about his career the hard way. He didn't come through a big academy, didn't have all the luxury that comes with playing at a top club when you're a young player. He was at Northampton, went to Newcastle very early, 19 years of age, got bounced around on a bunch of loans, twice to Barnsley, to Shrewsbury, to Scunthorpe, to Wigan, back to Scunthorpe. Then he joined Peterborough, smashed goals there, went to Brentford. Brentford had had Ollie Watkins the season before, sold him, brought in Ivan Tony, and Tony broke the single-season record for most goals in a championship season. Now, that's obviously been broken this year by Mitrovic, but to go from scoring 24 in League One to then kick on and get 31 in the championship, I think that's very, very impressive. He's 11 and 25 in the Premier League this season. Now, he does have, I think, five penalties. But still, he'd have double figures assists as well. If Brian Mbomo had brought his shooting boots from the championship into the Premier League, Ivan Tony would have double figures assists. Um, a really good all-round forward and one I'd have a lot of interest in seeing move to a bigger club in the summer. Uh, Brighton Hove Albion. I really like watching Tyree Glamty play. But I think my favourite player is McAllister. I just love how clever he is. I like the positions that he takes up, how good he is at receiving the ball on the half turn. I think I'd go McAllister, but definitely a nod of the cap to Tariq Lamptey. At Burnley, it's Dwight McNeil. And again, he's an old school throwback type of player. You know, left winger, gets chalk on his boots, great cross for the ball, but he can do a lot more than that as well. He can play off the right and act more as a playmaker cutting in field. I think he could play as a left back or a left wing back in an attack-minded, progressive team. I think he could play as a number eight in certain teams in a three-man midfield. Playing from in to out, I think he'd be absolutely outstanding. So Dwight McNeil, without question, is the one at Burnley. At Chelsea, it's Kai Havertz. But I love Kai the false nine more than Kai anywhere else. I think if you build your attack around him, I just think he's different class. His hold-up play, his link play, the positions he takes up, the way he just drifts wide, takes the ball, beats a player, 
shifts it on and keeps moving. The ball doesn't stop when it gets to Kai Havertz, and that's what I really like about him. He's got his decision made before the ball comes to him. He knows what he's going to do, whether it's a pass or a carry. He doesn't take the ball in and then have to assess his options. He's already got that picture in his head of where everybody else is. And as we've seen, he's a big game player. He was their best player in the League Cup final against Liverpool, and he won them the Champions League. So I think Kai Havertz will be the one for me. Crystal Palace, I've fallen in love with Michael Elisa this year. I just think he's a, he's a magician. Eight million, absolute bargain. They'll make a fortune on him. Even if he does have a buyout, which has been rumoured that it's 35 million, I, I, that's still nearly a five-fold profit on him. Lovely balance to his game. Dribbles well, passes well, great crosser, very good set pieces, and so young. Like, no maturity issues, no adaption to the Premier League, just walked in, acted like he owned the place, acted like he was the best player on the pitch every time he went out. I think he's sensational. Everton. Uh, Probably Ben Godfrey. Probably Ben Godfrey. It's there's not many options here. Well, no, to be fair, my favorite player at Everton is Deli Ali, but obviously he's barely played for them since joining in January. But that's based on Delhi a few years ago, less so than what we've seen of Delhi in the last couple of seasons. Um, I, I just I love the way Delhi played for Spurs, the way he ghosted into the right positions and score as many goals as he did. He's such a naturally skilled player. His touch, his control, can beat players in tight spaces. He's got that real upright style of play as well. I really like Delhi, but of the established Everton players, I'd probably go Ben Godfrey. Uh, I like Calvert Lewin. I like Richarlison to an extent, but Godfrey's one I think has real potential. I think it's going to need the right manager to properly develop him. I think ideally. You'd play him on the right of a back three. And considering they bought Michaelenko, who should be played on the left of a back three, that's the starting point of something for them. You can use Godfrey as like an underlapping centre back, similar to what Chris Wilder used to do with, with Basham at um, Sheffield United, similar to what we've seen Bastoni do at Inter Milan under both Conte and Inzaghi. He's good enough on the ball to do it. He's obviously uh, played holding midfield as well. Defensively, there's question marks, but I think he's got a lot of potential. He's just not been managed well since joining Everton. At Leeds, it's Rafinha. I love Calvin Phillips, but Rafinha is my favourite player there. He's just so much fun to watch. Just ruins players one-on-one. Has that aggression to his game as well, where you look at him and you see a slightly built potentially lightweight player and he's so tough he's so strong he wants the battle he wants to take it to players he's not afraid of graft yeah I, I go him but I do love Calvin Phillips as well at Leicester it's probably Yuri Tielemans but there's a few there that I really like like I love James Justin I was on the James Justin bandwagon leading the bandwagon when he was still at Luton and they got a bargain with him I think he's got the potential to be one of the better right-backs in the league, can play all across the back line, can play in midfield, 
just super versatile and good everywhere. But Yuri Thielemans is the one. Yuri Thielemans, I've been a fan of since he was at Anderlecht. I do feel like he hasn't fully re- realized his talents. Like his potential, there's still more potential there for him to get better. But his ability to control the game, he can play as a 10, he can play as an 8, can shoot with both feet, can pass really well off both feet. I'd go Thielemans as my favourite player there. Uh, at Liverpool, it's Van Dyke, And again, just one I was on the bandwagon for early. When he was at Celtic, I wanted Liverpool to sign him. Brendan Rodgers preferred to waste money on Dejan Lovren. He goes to Southampton after a year after Lovren leaves. Southampton, remember, sell Lovren, get Alderweireld on loan, who's much better than Lovren, then gets screwed out of Alderweireld and by Van Dijk, and it all works out perfectly for them. But there is a world in which Toby Alderweireld and Virgil van Dijk play together at Southampton and are the best centre-back pairing in the league. But obviously, it didn't work out that way. Liverpool finally got van Dijk, paid £75 million for him, and it's been a bargain. It has just been a bargain. Just look at their record with and without him. Look at what they've accomplished with him in the team and look how much they fell apart last season without him. When people talk about other players as Liverpool's most important, just point them in the direction of last season. Van Dijk is everything for Liverpool. He is their leader. Jordan Henderson can walk around wearing an armband all he wants. The leader at Liverpool is Virgil van Dijk. The system is heavily reliant on him. He organises the defence and calls the line. They play such a high line because he's able to allow that, because of his pace, because of the aura he has, teams just don't attack him. But he is the key reason for Liverpool being able to play as high and aggressive as they do. His cross-field passing is one of their best attacking weapons. When he goes forward on set pieces, he completely changes the geometry of the penalty box because so many players from the defensive team get drawn to him that it creates opportunities for others. He might end up being marked by three different players at one time. And if that happens, it means there's at least one Liverpool player somewhere with nobody on them. So it's Van Dijk there. I'm a little bit ashamed of this one, but at City, it's Bernardo Silva. And I know he's a little cry arser. And I know a lot of people don't like him, but I love him. I love watching him play. He's so skilled. He's one of the best dribblers in the world. He's a great passer. And his off-ball work is absolutely off the charts. If I could take one player from that City team, it would be him. And I love De Bruyne. I love Sterling. I love Phil Foden. Kinsale has grown on me massively, but it, it's Bernardo. At Manchester United, it's Bruno. And it's not particularly close. <laughs> a lot of Bruno slander this season, but the guy's still putting up some decent numbers. He's still the best player in that team. And what he's done since arriving in the Premier League is unheard of. The problem is he's been miscast. Ollie was an idiot. And Ollie thought he was buying Steven Gerrard 
But what he was actually getting was Frank Lampard 2.0. Oli tried to run his team through Bruno. And unfortunately, Bruno sort of bought into that and thought he was that guy. He's not that guy. What Bruno is, is he's Lampard. Brilliant off the ball, great at timing his runs to get in the box, an absolute output machine, but not someone you want being your primary playmaker. And if you go back and look at the teams, Chelsea, the Chelsea teams that Lampard played in, he was never their primary playmaker. He would get assists, but a lot of those would be arrive on the edge of the box, no opportunity to shoot, so slip the ball to Drogba, slip the ball wide to a winger. That's what Bruno needs to be doing. That's how Bruno needs to be used. You'd hope that Ten Hag, when he takes over, will realise what he has. That's if, if it's Ten Hag. It may be it may be Pochettino, it may be somebody else, but you'd hope that whoever it is will realise what they have. Uh, for Newcastle, it is Alan St. Maximum. I love Bruno Gamerich, but he's not been there long enough to really consider for this. St. Maximum is just fun. I wouldn't want him at my club. I think he's absolutely infuriating if you're a fan of his team. But he's so much fun to watch. He's so talented. So I'd go for him. At Norwich, Max Aaron's just been a fan of his for a few years. I think he's improved defensively. But he's been forced to sacrifice a bit of what makes him so special, which is attacking ability. I think he's more suited to being a wingback than a winger but I think he can be a really good player for a top club. You'd have to give him time. You'd have to coach him, but I think there's a real player there who could be something special if he's used right. At Southampton, I'd go Salisu. Liked him in Spain. Didn't play a whole lot last season. This season, he's become one of the better left-sided centre-backs in the division. Still young, still makes some mistakes, but he is destined for the top. It wouldn't surprise me if Spurs make an offer this summer because he would be perfect on the left of Conte's back three. Romero right, Conte, uh, Salisu left. Find that right person to go in the middle. It is not Eric Dyer, and that's a really good defence. At Tottenham, it's Youngman's son. It's always been Youngman's son. Um... He's just brilliant. He's brilliant at everything. He's their best player. And I, I will die on the hill that Youngman's son is a better football player than Harry Kane. Harry Kane's a better goal scorer, but Youngman's son is the better player. At Watford, I really like Joe Pedro. And it's a small sample size, obviously, because he doesn't play every game. He's missed chunks through injury. But there's just something about him. The way he carries himself, the wide-ranging skill set. I think I'd go Joe Pedro, and I think he is... If I was Arsenal, I've said this before, if I was Arsenal, and I'm looking to bring in two strikers this summer, I'd buy one who's ready to play now, and I'd buy him. So maybe like an Andre Silva from Leipzig, come in, will get you goals, offers the link play you're all, you're looking for to replace what Lacazette gives you, but more of a natural penalty box predator. Get two to three good years out of him, and then you have Joe Pedro ready to go. Now, he'll be, what, 24 by then? 
So he'd obviously played quite a bit in the interim, but I do think he's the type of striker that in the right circumstance with the right players around him could become something special. At West Ham, it's Pablo Fernandes. I just really enjoy watching him play. I think he's a really intelligent player. Does two or three other lads thinking for them so they can just get on with playing. But he's their best creator. Now, some people will say Lanzini, and I like Lanzini, but Fernals creates with and without the ball. Like, you watch Declan Rice pick the ball up and make one of his runs and watch what Fernals does so frequently. Makes little runs off the back of the fullback or another midfielder to just drag them out of position, to, to just even distract them that they look and he's there and they look back and Rice has gone the other side. Does a lot of unselfish things for the team. I think he makes everybody around him a little bit better. And that's the type of player I like. And at Wolves, it's Ruben Neves. It's been Ruben Neves for a long time. I've, I, I wanted Ruben Neves at Liverpool when he was at Porto. Didn't happen. Went to Wolves, took a chance, was incredible in the championship, brought them into the Premier League, has been very good in the Premier League. He did stagnate without question for about 18 months, all of last season and the back half of the season before. That may have been a COVID thing. He just wasn't comfortable in the circumstance. But this season, he has been brilliant. This season, he has an argument to be in the team of the year. Now, he won't get in because there's been other excellent midfielders playing at the bigger clubs. But Neves, from August to now, has consistently been very, very good. Very, very good. And I, I think there's very few midfielders that do that August to May. We'll see how Neves ends the season. But, you know, we've seen in the past, like, say, Yuri Tielemans, who I mentioned earlier, the last two years, brilliant from August to February. And then his legs start to go on him and he's just exhausted from the burden he's been carrying. You don't see many midfielders put together a great August to me. You've never seen, for example, Jack Grealish put together a great August to me, ever, at any level. It's never happened. He's never had a great season. He's had great stats seasons, but he's never had a great season because he's either missed two months with an injury or he's had six weeks where he's just completely off the boil. Neves this season has been outstanding from August to where we stand now, 23rd of March. And I think he's, he's deserving of being in the conversation for team of the year. As I said, I don't think he gets in, but he's, he deserves to be mentioned. Uh, so that will be that. That will be my favorite player at all 20. Premier League clubs. Um, not that anyone asked, but it is a Wednesday during a international break, so I am struggling. Right. What I want to do next is take a look. I want to do this over the next three days. Take a look at all 20 Premier League teams. An early look at what they might need in the summer. Not in depth, not at players, but just at positional holes in each of their squads. So 
I'm just going to do it alphabetically. So today I'll do Arsenal to Palace. Tomorrow I'll do Everton to Manchester United. And Friday we'll do Newcastle to Wolves, uh, just as, as part of the, the general podcast. So let's take a look at Arsenal. We know that they've got Ramsdale in goal. I wouldn't be a huge fan that he's absolutely going to be the number one next season. And he has had a good year to his credit. They will need a backup goalkeeper because Leno's leaving, but it sounds like they've got one already lined up, the American whose name escapes me. They've also got a Kongwo, the youngster who was on the bench at the weekend, uh, who's an absolute giant. Um, so he's likely to be third choice next year. They've got an excellent right back in Tommy Asu. They need a backup. And I would say to them, get a backup who's similar to Tommy Asu profile-wise. Don't go and buy... A really, unless you want a change of pace right back, go, don't go and buy like a Jed Spence or an Isaiah Jones or a Jaden Bogle. Go and buy someone more in the mold of Tommy Asu because otherwise, if Tommy Asu is injured or suspended, the entire shape and system at the back changes because he's a specific profile. He's from the Branislav Ivanovic type of right back. So go and find someone in that mould. It's time to say goodbye to Cedric. He's done you no disservice. He's been decent for you since he was signed. But it is time to go and find a better right-back cover than him. They're set at left-back. They've got Tierney and they've got Tavares. You'd be happy with both of them. They've got Ben White. They've got Gabriel. They need centre-back cover. Now, they will bring back William Saliba, so that's one. But they need a natural lefty because of how they build out from the back. Arteta is very specific. Well, Guardiola is very specific about playing a right footer and a left footer. That's what he prefers. And that's why we've seen Arteta do it as well, because he just copies what Pep does. But Gabriel as a left footer is ideal. You need a backup for him. They do own Pablo Mari. They could bring him back, and that would solve that problem. If they don't, then they need to go and buy one. If they sell Mari, they need to go and buy one. And Rob Holding then is your fifth centre-back. They need a starting midfielder, without doubt, to go next to Thomas Partey. If Xhaka leaves, then you need a depth midfielder as well. You've got Lakonga as the backup to Lakonga as the backup to Thomas. Now maybe they'll look at Charlie Patino next year and think he's ready to be involved. In which case, you know, El Nenny can play a bit more, and that's your five. But at least one midfielder, I would I would go for two, and then they need two strikers. They're set in the line of three behind the one. They've got Saka and Pepe. That's that side sorted. They've got Martinelli on the left. Saka and Pepe can both play there as well. So can Smith-Rowe. Then they've got Odegaard and Smith-Rowe as number 10 types. They could bring back Reese Nelson as well to give them another body in that area. They'll have Balogun. They need two more strikers. So two strikers... 
two midfielders, a depth right back, and a depth centre back. I think Arsenal need six players in the summer. I think they'll be aggressive. I think they've already signaled that they do want two strikers and a couple of other pieces. But I think they need six players. I would be selling Xhaka without question. Buying a starting midfielder to go next to Thomas. Buying a backup and Lakonga and El Nani. I think that's a core group that you can work with. Bring Patino along slowly. Maybe use him often in the number 10 position, which I believe he's played in the academy at times as a backup to Odegaard. That, I, I say 10, it's that right-sided eight that plays a lot more advanced and has a bit of a freer role. Um, and then, the, like I said, they're fine in the wide areas. They need those strikers. Uh, moving on to Aston Villa, really good goalkeeper in Emmy Martinez. You wouldn't have any concerns there. I think they might end up trying to keep Robin Olsen as the, the backup, and I think that's a good move. I think he's a better keeper than he's given credit for. They've also got Sinisalo, the young, is he, isn't he the young Finnish guy? He's, um, yeah, 20 years of age. He's a good keeper. Very promising. So they're, they're set in goal. They've got a good starting right back in Matty Cash, but they need a depth option there. They've got a good starting left back in Luca Dina, but if they're going to sell Matt Target, they need to find a backup there as well. They need a starting centre-back. You've got Konza, you need a starting centre-back. Then you go House, Chambers and Mings as your backup three. You've got to get a starting centre-back in. They need a starting holding midfielder. Marvellous Nakamba is the only defensive midfielder. They need natural defensive midfielder at the club. Douglas Louise has played there. He's more comfortable as an eight. And you put him in the eight rotation with McGinn, Morgan Sanson, Jacob Ramsey, and Carney Chukwameka, if you can convince him to stay long-term. And all of a sudden, you've got great options for those number eight positions, but you've got to get that defensive midfielder in. Then you get Nakamba as the depth piece behind him. And then, if in doubt, Douglas Louise can be your third option, or if stuck. I don't know what happens with Coutinho. But if they keep him, they've got Coutinho and Buendia as the playmaking type of 10. They've got Watkins and Ings as their nine options. I think they need one more in the forward line. A secondary goal scorer. Someone who's comfortable playing in a wide forward role and scoring goals. Now, it may be that Gerard looks to change it up a little bit and go two up top. In which case, I still wouldn't have Ings as the starter. I'd still have him as a backup, so you want a striker. If they go to more of a diamond midfield with Coutinho as a 10, Buendia is his backup. That group of eights, starting defensive midfielder in Nakamba, then you get Watkins with Ings as his backup and a new player with, in all likelihood, Leon Bailey as his backup. And then you probably move Burton Traore out the door. They've got a lot of decisions to make over some of their other players throughout on loan as well. Trezeguet, El Ghazi, uh, Gilbert, Conor Hurrahan, Wesley. 
these are lads that can all be moved on. Bring in some money for them. You won't get much, but you'll get something. Uh, but if they keep Coutinho and go to a diamond, which they have played a little bit more recently, I'd be looking to bring in a striker. So striker, holding midfielder, starting centre-back, and a couple of depth full-backs. Five players, I think, is what Villa need, ideally. Um, Brentford. I'm not a big fan of David Rea, but he has made such such a, an impact on their season. Remember, really good start. He gets hurt. Absolute collapse. He comes back. They pick things back up again. So I think you just roll with him for next season. Fernandez isn't great, but you might as well keep hold of him if you can, or you go and buy a backup. They might keep Jonas Lossel as well, who's an unloan from Mittelland. They've got a very good left back, Enrico Henry, but they don't have depth behind him, so you need to add that. They need a starting right wing back or right back. They were looking in January for Vanderson, couldn't get it done. He went to Monaco, so you need a starter there. They need at least one starter, at least one starter at centre-back. Ayer's very good, but you need at least one more in that back three. Pinnock is a, is a squad player and shouldn't be any more than that. Same thing goes for Zanka. Have them as your squad players. Go Ayer, um, Pontus Janssen, and a new signing as your back three. So two starters there and a depth left back. Midfield, I think they're pretty good. They've got... Norgard, they've got Onyeka, they've got Janelt, they've got Christian Eriksen, Matthias Jensen, Josh De Silva, and Shandon Baptiste. So they're they're fairly set in midfield. They don't need to buy anyone there. They've got Tony up front. They need a depth piece for him. Now, he might leave, so you'll have to replace him, but they need a backup for Ivan Tony. And then the other forward role, they've got Mbuomo, They've got, uh, what's the fellow's name? He scored a couple of goals them recently. Uh, Johan Wissa. You've got him. Those two compete for the other role. But the, the real needs, right wing back and one starting centre back. And then the depth needs one up front and a left wing back. And that should be enough to keep them competitive again next season. Uh, Brighton and Hove Albion. I don't like the goalkeeper. I would want a starting goalkeeper. I, I, I'm not a fan. But if you're sticking with Bob Sanchez, you've got to get a better backup than Jason Steele. That's got to be a priority. They do have Kel Sherpin, the giant Dutchman, but he's 21. I think you probably want to get, give him a bit more seasoning. So I would be still looking for a backup keeper. Definitely need a starting centre-back. They're best in a back three. And they've only got two good starting centre-backs, Dunk and Webster. Duffy and Veltman are depth players at this point. Cucurella and Lamptey were born to play as wing-backs, not full-backs. So you've got to get a starting centre-back. They will likely lose Yves Basuma this summer. That's a, that's a blow. But if, if, if they get to keep him, if he signs on to stay... You've got him, you've got Mwepu, you've got Moder, you've got Alzati, so that's fine. You're set in midfield. 
Solly March is a good backup left wing back. You need a backup right wing back. And probably... Yeah, that'll be it. A backup left wing back. No, backup right wing back to give Lamptey some, some rest. They've also got Karbonik to come back from Olympiakos where he's on loan. So he can give them more cover at left wing back. So it'll be set there. There's a couple of other options for midfield, like Jason Malumbi, who comes back off loan. Up front, you've got McAllister. He's a midfield option as well. You've got Mope, you've got Trossard. They've got Undav to come in off his loan. They've got Sima to come in off his loan. Uh, Zakiri they could bring back off loan, but I, I don't think he's Premier League quality. They need a starting number nine. All of those attacking players they have are better off a number nine. Danny Welbeck is not the answer. Move him on down the road. Starting striker, starting centre-back, depth right wing back, and maybe one more for depth, and a backup goalkeeper. That's what they need. That's five. Two starters, three depth pieces. Moving on to Burnley. Obviously, a lot depends on what division they're in, but we're going to act like they stay up. So you've got Pope. Your backup goalkeeper is Wayne Hennessy. So I'd be looking for a backup goalkeeper. You've got Will Norris as well, so maybe you're happy enough. They've got Connor Roberts, Matt Loughton, and... Phil Bardsley for right back. My guess is Bardsley might retire at the end of this season. At left back, Charlie Taylor's very good, but you need a better backup than Eric Peters. They're going to lose Tarkovsky almost certainly. So they need a centre-back. In fact, they need two centre-backs because as things stand, they've only got three good ones. They've got Tarkovsky, they've got me, and they've got Nathan Collins. So losing Tarkovsky, they've got to bring in two centre-backs. In midfield, two backup centre-backs will be fine, by the way. You don't need two starters. Two backups are fine. Collins is good enough to start next to me. In midfield, they've got Cork. They've got Westwood. They've got Brownhill. They need one more in midfield because Dale Stevens doesn't cut it in the Premier League. So you need one more in central midfield. Uh, you've got McNeil and Goodmanson for one wide spot. I would say you've got Cornet and Lennon for the other. So I think you're okay in the wide areas, unless you want to play Cornet through the middle on a regular basis. You've got Veghorst, you've got Rodriguez, you've got Vidra. If Cornet is your fourth forward and not a winger, then you need a starting winger. If he's not, you need a starting forward. Now, Look, they could obviously upgrade on a lot of these players. I'm not suggesting that that would all of a sudden turn Burnley into a top half team to just sign two backup four, a two backup centre backs, a backup left back, and a starting forward or winger. I'm just talking about kind of glaring needs in the squad here. But that's five players. Um, for Chelsea. 
you've got Mendy as your starting keeper, so you're fine. I think I'd probably be looking to loan Kepa and bring in a, a better, or not a better backup, a more reliable backup than Kepa, who is just plagued with inconsistency. And you've got Bettinelli, who's there for quota reasons, and he's a solid enough uh, third keeper to have. They're probably losing Rudiger, they're probably losing Christensen, and they're probably losing Aspilicueta. So I would say they need three starting centre-backs. I would say Chelsea need to go this summer and buy three starting centre-backs. And then you have Chalaba, Silva, and Sar as your depth. Now, it may be that they could bring Levi Colwell back and he could be one of them, but he's very young. And Chelsea don't have a great track record at promoting their own centre-backs. That's why Tamore and Guehi both left. But I would say they need three starting centre-backs. Left-wing back is fine once Chilwell is back. You get Chilwell and you get Alonso, who's had a decent season. Right wing back, Reese James, obviously the starter. I would just say Callum Hudson-Odoi can be the backup there because he's played there and been good. So I'd just say that's fine. Uh, in midfield, you've got Jorginho, you've got Kante, you've got Kovacic. I'd be trying to get Mason Mount more involved in that midfield to free up a spot in the attack for a natural attacker. I think you get more out of Mount a bit deeper as well. Uh, but they could. I still think, like last summer, they need to find that holding midfielder, someone that can actually play and allow Kante, Kovacic, or Mount to bomb forward. Someone that will sit there, keep things ticking over. Basically, a more physical version of Jorginho. One in midfield, then. Three at the back. Up front, a lot depends on Lukaku. If he leaves, they'll probably look to replace him. But if he doesn't, you get Havertz and Lukaku as the nine options. Mount will obviously play some, get a lot of games in the front three. I think Harvey Vale will step up next season and see a lot of games in the front three. You've got Zayic. Hudson-Odoi can play in the front three. You've got Pulisic and Werner for the other side. I think they're fine in attack. I think one in midfield, three starting defenders. And the midfielder doesn't need to be a starter. It can be a young player. It can be a project that they're going to bring along. It doesn't need to be somebody that is going to come in and start immediately. Um, they've also obviously got Billy Gilmore to come back. They could bring back Gallagher and play him. Tino Andrin could become an option for them. Ethan Ampadu could become an option for them. You know, if they decide that Silva's okay to roll out for the year, then Ampadu could be a backup to him. And then you need two centre-backs. Maybe Caldwell can be a starter next to Silva. So now you only need one starter. You know, they can find ways to improve without spending a bunch of money. If they decide that Callum Hudson-Odoi isn't the answer as a backup right-back, maybe Dion Sterling is. He's out on loan at Blackpool at the moment. Very, very talented player. So they've got plenty of options. There's that other right-back as well, Henry Lawrence. He's at AFC Wimbledon on loan. They've got options to solve things internally. If, for example, they decide to move on from Marcus Alonso, Ian Matson could be the answer there. 
Dutch under 18 international currently on loan at Coventry, had a good loan spell at Charlton the year before. Juan Castillo, currently on loan at Charlton this year, could be the option. So they, they can fix a lot of their squad issues internally, but there's definitely big needs at centre-back with Rudiger and Christensen and Aspilicueta all likely leaving. Um, on to Palace then as the last one. Jack Butland has never recovered from the ankle injury he suffered when he was at Stoke. When he had the surgery, the surgery failed and he had to have his ankle rebroken and reset and then a second operation. That was in 2016. He He's never been the same since. He's had some good outings this season, but he's only played 11 games. I think Guaita's passed his best. I'd be looking to bring in a goalkeeper if I was Crystal Palace. Butland can maybe be your backup. Gaeta can be your number three and, you know, there for leadership and experience, but you've, you've got to add a goalkeeper. They've got Tariq Mitchell at left back. I really like him. I think he's very, very good. Um, Adara Mola, the young Irish left back, he looked good when he played there in the cup this year. So he can be the backup and that's that position sorted. But right back is an issue. Joel Ward has never been Premier League calibre. Nathaniel Klein does a solid job, but ideally you're looking to bring in a starter there. Starter at right back. Your centre-backs are set in terms of your starters in Gwehi and Anderson. There's not many better partnerships in the league. Um, I actually, just on, on the right back thing, I'd look to move on both Ward and Klein. Move them on down the road. Nathan Ferguson can be your backup. Get a starter in front of him. Um, and as for left back, Jeff Schlupp can fill in there if you need him to. At centre back, you've got Gwehi, you've got Anderson, you've still got James Tompkins, you've still got Martin Kelly, you've still got Riedeveld can play there, and Nathan Ferguson can play there. But I'd probably look to bring in one more for depth. Coyote can play there as well if needed. So maybe they're all right. Maybe that doesn't need to be done this summer. Maybe you just look at goalkeeper and right back. Definitely a holding midfielder. Someone that can be the successor to Koyate. Uh, maybe move uh, Milivojevic off down the road and see if you can get anything in for him. Um, in the number eight positions, Will Hughes is a good player. Jeff Schlupp is a decent player. They've also got James MacArthur, who can, who's an important player for them. So those three would be my depth pieces in those number eight positions. I think Ezzy can be converted into a full-time number eight. And if they can keep Conor Gallagher, that's brilliant. But if not, they need to replace Conor Gallagher. They need to find someone that can fulfill his role. That spark plug, that presser, that ball winner, someone like him. So two number eights, no, sorry, a number six and a number eight. Up front, I wouldn't really mess with things. Um, you've got Mateta and Eduard through the middle. Olise, Zaha, Au, Schlup. They can all play 
in those wide in those wide forward areas. So I wouldn't buy another attacker. You've still got Benteke as well, obviously. I wouldn't bring in another attacker. But I would be looking to bring in those midfielders. A six, an eight, a starting right, a starting right back. So like a long-term six. A starting eight, whether it be Gallagher or someone like him. Starting right back and a starting keeper. So four players. Four players, I think, are needed. And look, again, you, you could maybe push off doing the, the the holding midfielder one for a year because Will Hughes can play there and Redevelop can play there. So if you wanted to just go big on Gallagher, do that. Maybe look at a championship right back, like a Bogle, a Spence, a Jones. Uh, maybe, maybe look at Wan-Bissaka on loan. Something like that. And a goalkeeper. So Gallagher and a goalkeeper could be your outlay. Wan-Bissaka on loan. And then you just you push the centre-back and holding midfield things down the road another year and you try and get a year's worth of decent cover out of Kelly, Tompkins, Ferguson, Riedeveld. And then in midfield, out of Hughes and Riedeveld. I think that could work. Go big on Gallagher. Go for the loan of Juan Bissaka, because I do think United would do it. I genuinely do. And then go and find yourself a goalkeeper. It's a good squad, though. It is a good squad. There's some good young players there as well. Some that might play a bit of a part next season. Um, but we'll wait, we'll wait and see. So that's what I'll do for today. Those seven. Uh, tomorrow we'll do Everton, Leeds, Leicester, Liverpool, Manchester City and Manchester United. And then Friday, Newcastle, Norwich, Southampton, Tottenham, Watford, West Ham and Wolves. And again, just based on the squad now and the holes in them, not, not what can make them make a jump from here to there or you know turn them into something that they're not going to be. Just simply, what are the major holes they have in their squads right now? Uh, what should they be looking to address in the summer? Uh, we'll take a break. When we come back, we've got a bit of news. We've got the gossip. And that's it. I'll see you in a sec. Right. Welcome back. So uh, it is a quiet day. Obviously, there's not a whole lot of news, but it does look like the UK and the Republic of Ireland will be hosting the European Championships in 2028. The biggest reason for that does seem to be that nobody else wanted to host it. But we're not going to complain. So potentially it could be a tournament of 32 teams held between England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and the Republic. Now, for fairness reasons, the stadiums will have to be spread out. Now, I've said before, I don't think, I would have preferred it to be without England because England have hosted the Euros before. England hosted the final of the last Euros. And I think Scotland, Ireland and Wales could have hosted it together. So, 
if we look at Scotland, you've got four massive stadiums. You've got Hampden Park. You've got Murrayfield. You've got Parkhead. And you've got Ibrox. All of them over 50,000. Now, Hamden would probably need some upgrading, but Parkhead, Ibrox, and Murrayfield, all absolutely perfect. Now, there's obviously three stadiums in, in one city, which is a bit of a, a bit of a push, but I think it can be it can be made to work. I do think it can be made to work because there's, there's well enough spread out. You've got Tanadice. You've got Easter Road. You've got Pataudry. They're not big enough, but they could be used for group stage games among you know teams that won't necessarily have huge numbers of fans there. So Scotland has a lot of options. Wales, obviously, you've got the Millennium Stadium. You've got Cardiff Stadium. And you've got Swansea Stadium. So you've got three really good options there. The Millennium Stadium is the major one. The other two capacities probably, you know, 30,000, 35,000. But still, they're good stadiums. And then in Ireland, you've got Croke Park, the Aviva, and you could upgrade one of the big GAA stadiums. So Porky Cueve has had a recent enough refit, so it could be used. Uh, Sample Stadium. Maybe Limerick. You've also got the rugby stadium in Limerick that Munster use. Northern Ireland don't really have a stadium big enough. It is the big problem here. Now, unless you turn Antrim's GAA stadium into a football stadium, soccer stadium. It doesn't really work because Windsor Park's not big enough. And it has had a big refurbishment of late that it's a nice stadium now, but still very small. Ravenhill is small as well. So I don't really know what the answer for Northern Ireland would be. So you might have to exclude them, which seems unfair. But you could use Windsor, Windsor Park, Croke Park, the Aviva and, say, Porky Cueve would have been fine. That gives the island of Ireland four stadiums. You could have got four in Scotland and two in Wales, say, the Millennium and Swansea, because, you know, you get one in Cardiff, one in Swansea. And then that's 10 stadiums. That would have been more than enough to host the tournament without involving England. As it stands, my my guess is that the majority of the stadiums used will be in England and that there'll be one in Scotland, Hamden, one in Wales, the Millennium, one in Dublin, the Aviva, and Windsor Park in Northern Ireland, in Belfast, and that'll be it. And the rest will all come from England. That's what I'm guessing will happen. I'm basing that now largely on the, the way that they've split the the Canada, America, Mexico World Cup, which I, I still think is going to be a mess. I don't really know why America needs to share a World Cup with anybody, considering how many massive stadiums they have for NFL and college football. I mean, America 
there's probably 15 stadiums with a capacity of over 90,000 in America. List of biggest stadiums in USA. Right. We have 11 stadiums in the United States of America that hold more than 90,000. We have 22 stadiums that hold more than 80,000. Now, Wembley, if I'm not mistaken, is the biggest or second biggest stadium in Europe, and it holds 90,000. America have the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California, which I believe was the... That's the stadium where they had the World Cup final in 94 for UCLA play. The Cotton Bowl, which... If I'm not mistaken, is not regularly used. I could be wrong on that. Yeah, the must the SMU Mustangs used to play there. Now it's largely used for like big rivalry games. So the Red River Showdown, which is between the University of Oklahoma, the Sooners, and the University of Texas, the Longhorns in college football, that game gets played there. But other than that, it's not a stadium in use all the time. It's just this 92,000-seater stadium, or 92,000-capacity stadium. just doesn't get used. Uh, Sanford Stadium, home of the Georgia Bulldogs, 95,000. Bryant-Denny Stadium, home of the Alabama, Alabama Crimson Tide, 100,000. The Darrell K. Royal Texas Memorial Stadium in Austin, Texas, home of the Texas Longhorns, 100,000. Tiger Stadium at LSU, 102,000. Neyland Stadium, home of the Tennessee Volunteers, uh, 102. Kyle Field, that's Texas A&M, uh, there at 102. Ohio Stadium, home of the Buckeyes, known as the Shoe, 102. Beaver Stadium, home of the Penn State Nittany Lions, uh, they are at 106,500. And then Michigan Stadium, known as the Big House, University of Michigan, 107,000. So all of them, they're all belonging to colleges or used for college games in the main. As are the next three on the list, the Nebraska Cornhusker Stadium, Memorial Stadium, the Jordan-Hare Stadium at the University of Auburn, and the Ben Hill-Griffin Stadium, the Swamp, for the Florida Gators. They're both, they're all over 85,000, the three of them. The 14 biggest stadiums in the USA are all used for college football. That is bananas to me. Like, because the NFL is massive. But college football it just has such an incredible following. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 22 of the 30 biggest stadiums in America are college football and the other eight are for the NFL. Like, I've gone off topic here, but the point was they didn't need anybody to share with them for the World Cup. They could have just used these types of stadiums. In the same way England don't need Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, they could have done it by themselves. 
But because they had the recent Euro finals, they had the Euros in 96, I wonder if they just couldn't get it by themselves and they've roped in the others, but they'll give them one stadium each. It would be disappointing if there's only one stadium in each country outside of England. That, that would that would disappoint me. It's the only bid that's been confirmed. Um, Turkey considered a bid, but they have withdrawn their bid. They've just routinely been unsuccessful. They bid in 08, 12, 16, 20, and for 24. Russia's bid was rejected um, for obvious reasons. The Italians showed interest, but they announced they'll bid for Euro 2032. Uh, there was a Scandinavian, there was talk of a Scandinavian bid. Denmark, Finland, Iceland, Norway, Sweden, and the Faroe Islands. Apologies if one or two of them are not considered Scandinavia. This is not a geography program, but you know what I mean. They considered a bid and decided not to go ahead. Portugal and Spain were going to make a bid, and initially they were the favourites. Now, they're also talking about doing a bid for the 2030 World Cup, so we'll wait and see on that one. And then Romania, Greece, Bulgaria, and Serbia considered a bid as well. They've also considered a bid for the next for that 2030 World Cup. I, I just don't know how that one would work. Like, I, I just don't think that one works. Hmm. I am just curious to see how this one works out with, with the five countries. And I, I my worry is that it's just going to be basically it's in England and some games get played elsewhere. Like we'll get, you know, we'll get Slovenia versus Northern Macedonia in Dublin. And there'll be 8,000 people at it and no one will care. And Northern Ireland will get you know, Malta versus the Faroe Islands, or it won't be those two, obviously, but you know what I mean? Something along those lines. So I just hope it's done fair. That's it. I hope it's done fair, and I hope there's an even split of stadiums, even if the finals at Wembley, even though I don't think it should be because the last one was, um, I can get on board with it as long as, you know, the semifinals are played elsewhere and there's an even split of stadiums. Like, Ireland should, Ireland should get at least two. We should get at least two. We should get... The Aviva and Croke Park. Because Croke Park is awesome. And it's easy to use. And it's been used for football before. And the, the GAA, they'll always take a brown envelope of cash. Scotland have four stadiums that could be used. So use them. Even if you just use Hamden Park and Murrayfield, you don't use the club stadiums. Use them. Same in Wales. Give them two. Northern Ireland only have one. They Windsor. That's it. But, you know, if it's two for Ireland, two for Scotland, two for Wales, one for Northern Ireland, and say three from England. Wembley, Old Trafford, and let's just say Villa Park because it's nice and snug in the middle of the country. Just use them. That, that's 10 stadiums. That should be enough. 
Use those 10. Now, I reckon Tottenham Stadium, the London Stadium, the Etihad, Anfield. Where am I missing? I mean, Twickenham could be used as well if England really wanted to, but, you know, they're just spoiled for choice. I just hope it's evenly balanced and I'll move on and stop rambling. Um, the Ricketts family have offered to meet Chelsea fans over concerns over their bid. So I was watching this last night and they had this guy on who's like, uh, Brian Wolf is his name. He's the head of Chelsea's official Chicago supporters group. And he's a Chicago Cubs fan. Now, most of his rant was about who the Ricketts family backs in terms of politics. Now, they're Trump supporters. So you're against the Ricketts family because they're Trump supporters. But you had no problem with Roman Abramovich, who's a Putin supporter. So there's a bit of hypocrisy there. Now, obviously, Joe Ricketts has made some very unfortunate racist comments in the past, which I wasn't really aware of until recently. But that didn't seem to be the big problem. Now, a couple of Chelsea fans obviously have come out and said, we don't want anything to do with this type of person. But I'm sure if you go through the history of other owners in the league, there's probably a couple of them have said some very questionable things. Now, is that reason enough? Maybe it's maybe it's reason enough to say no to them, but I don't think it will be. Not, not from the fans' perspective, I'm talking about from the people actually handling the sale. I don't think that will rule out the Ricketts family. What Brian Wolf then went on to say was that uh, the Cubs owners, the Ricketts family, after winning the World Series, which, by the way, you should be saying thank you to them for every day. You hadn't won one in 100 years. After winning that, they haven't invested in the playing squad. And that's at the crux of what the issue is. That's the biggest reason the Chelsea fans don't want the Ricketts family. It's nothing to do with what they've said. It's nothing to do with who they back financially or politically. It's because they don't put massive amounts of money into the Cubs anymore. They did it, they won the World Series, and now they've pulled back. That's the problem. That's why they're against this. Because the concern for them, obviously, is that, well, a new owner comes in and doesn't spend like Roman, what happens to us? Breaking news, all of the bids that are put in, all of them, will mean massive spending cutbacks at Chelsea, including the Saudi media group, which they haven't made a bid. Maybe they still will. Maybe they'll be given an extension to put in a bid or whatever. But all of them are going to mean massive cutbacks in spending. All of them are like coalition bids. None of them are one really rich guy with really deep pockets. All of them are going to be profit and loss merchants. And remember the, the new FFP rules where you can only spend 70% of your income on wages and amortization. That screws Chelsea because their income is quite a bit lower than Liverpool and United. Now, maybe they could take the Manchester City approach and just cheat, but 
you know, I, I don't know if Chelsea get away with that. By the way, can we all just City around our pause? Not even trying to hide the fact that they're flagrantly cheating and falsely boosting their income. They want people, they genuinely think people are going to sit there and believe that Manchester City, who can't fill their own stadium, are a bigger, more commercial giant than Liverpool and Man United and Real Madrid and Bayern Munich and PSG and everyone else. It, it's just, it's hilarious. But these rules are going to come in. FFP, as we knew it, or as we hope to know it, is going. And this new rule with the 70% law will come in. Uh, they're going to stagger it in. So for the first year it's in, it'll be 90, then 80, then 70, then it'll be a hard line at 70. Certain Premier League clubs will massively feel the pinch in that. Everton and Leicester, uh, the two, the two most at risk of getting themselves in trouble. Because when you look at wages and amortization versus income, both Leicester and Everton are spending way more than they make. And obviously that doesn't include other areas where they spend money either. So, yeah. Um, I, I look forward to seeing what happens with Chelsea, but none of these bids that have come in, regardless of whether it's the Ricketts family, Nick Candy, uh, Martin Broughton's group, uh, Todd Bowley's group, none of them, none of them, will be seen to spend the way Roman has spent. Not one of them. The BBC are still doing this Wonder Kids thing. So they went with Julian Alvarez up front, which I thought was weird. They played Florian Verts as a right wing back. Uh, Ryan Gravenberch is a defensive midfielder Keikai as a central back that's fine that's what he is Gavi is an 8 that's fine that's what he is uh, now they've gone with Kamaldine Suleimane as a as a wing back now I think they mean to have him as a winger like three three defenders five in midfield with no defensive presence at all and then two up front but you know at least try and make these things realistic Kamaldine Suleimane is sensational and um, he he's going to be absolutely elite. We'll just finish up with the gossip and be done for the day. We have here, Juventus are preparing a huge financial package to lure Mo Salah from Liverpool to Turin. Okay. Uh, don't believe that for a second, but moving on. Argentina forward Paolo Dybala is set to leave Juventus on a free transfer again after the club opted against renewing his contract. Uh, after he opted against renewing his contract is what they actually mean. West Ham will demand £150 million for Declan Rice. So Declan Rice will be staying at West Ham. Uh, Leeds are preparing to offer Calvin Phillips a new contract in an attempt to stave off interest from West Ham and Aston Villa. I also think there's going to be interest from Manchester United, potentially Arsenal, Maybe Liverpool if they don't get many. Frank Kessie has agreed a four-year contract with Barcelona and will join the club in the summer. I think that's a mistake by him. 
Antonio Rudiger is demanding a £25 million signing fee as he prepares to leave Chelsea as a free agent. That's nonsense. His signing fee will be one year of his contract paid up front. That is what happens. So if you sign a five-year contract for 200 grand a week, that's 10 million a year. You basically get 60 million over your six years, over your five years, rather than the 50 million in your contract, you get an extra 10 million as a signing bonus, which you can either get up front or you can get it spread across your contract, but that's generally what happens. Tottenham can turn Dejan Kulosevsky's move, loan move into a permanent transfer by paying 24.9 million this summer. That's well worth doing. He's been really good since joining. Eden Hazard is confused and frustrated at Real Madrid, who intend to offload him in the summer. I don't know what he's got to be confused about. He's been garbage since he went there, and I'd imagine they're far more frustrated with him than he can be with them. Luka Jovic is not part of Carlo Ancelotti's plans and will leave in the summer, and he should, and he should be a, a warning to all young strikers. Unless you're going there with a guarantee of starting, don't go there. There are doubts over the future of. Maurizio Sarri at Lazio after Lazio lost the Derby 3-0 against Roma on Sunday. Um, it, that seems fair. It really does seem fair if we take a quick look at the Serie A table. Lazio will be disappointed with seventh place. They're 10 points off the Champions League spots. They're two points behind Roma and Atalanta. They'll be disappointed because there's a lot of talent there. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if they do move on from him, but I would be inclined to give him a bit more time. I, I generally would anyway. Um, Newcastle stepping up their bid to sign Lloyd Kelly. Rafinha has rejected Leeds' first approach over a new contract. I'd imagine he'll reject them all. I can't see that he'll be there next season. Former Manchester United and Netherlands striker Ruud van Nistelrooy is the frontrunner for the PSV Eindhoven manager's job. So obviously at the moment, Roger Smith or Schmidt is the manager and he has said he will leave in the summer uh, because he could not agree a new contract. I think he wanted some more control of the club than he was given, but um, he he's really rebuilt himself after a bit of a disappointing time at Bayer Leverkusen. Uh, and he will be very hot property this summer on the managerial market. Arsenal and Tottenham are tracking Galatasaray's 23-year-old Turkish winger, Muhammad Kiram. Uh, don't know anything about him. Neymar earns 600000 a week more than Lionel Messi at PSG. I'm not a all surprised because PSG have just given him everything he wants. Brentford and Burnley have had bids rejected for Joe Worrell and now West Ham and Everton have joined the list of admirers for Nottingham Forest, English centre-back. Worrell in the middle of a back three at Everton with Godfrey and Michael Enko either side. That's something that could work. He can work in a back four, obviously, very well as well. Uh, I could definitely see him at West Ham. As a, as a Moyes centre-back, him and him and Kurt Zuma. Yeah, something I could see work. He's a very good player. And uh, we'll leave it there for today, folks. Thanks, as always, for listening. I will see you tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.
Social Podcast Network.